Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. It is the 10th of the 10th, I believe. It's certainly a Sunday, that I know for sure. Michael, how have you been since Friday? I've been fine, Gary. Thank you very much. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. So just a, a quick note to... Uh to start off with, we were talking on Friday about um, Caleb Robinson and the whole vaccine furor. I'm glad to report that that has most likely come to a conclusion, as I am told, I didn't watch it, but I'm told that he scored several goals last night, and now that he is popular, media organisations just aren't going to want the hassle. So it's good to see that that cleared itself up, Michael, in the best possible way. <laughs> we shall see. It certainly takes the sting out of a certain number of commentators who liked to observe that he had had COVID more times than he'd scored for Ireland. I suppose he has he has done the best, or he has committed himself to the best defence when you're attacked by the Irish media. Become popular. Be good at something. Now, there's an idea, Gary. Do something well. If you're an Irish politician and you want to be popular, do something well. I wonder if they considered that. Maybe there is a more general lesson here. So we've had a fun little um, week of uh, actually increasing our corporate tax rate is good. That's been the general tone of it. We're going to make more money. It's going to be uh, super. It's going to be fantastic. bit odd considering that before we actually committed to doing that, the uh, analysis is used were very strongly in the other direction and now they almost like a lot of the analysis is just kind of support whatever the prevailing decision is. There is a certain oddity to it all right when you say it like that. For a very long time, I mean I, probably not that much uh, shorter than the actual time that the, 15, the 12.5% rate has been in existence, it has been regarded as the, the touchstone, the cornerstone of Irish economic policy. Charlie back in the day reduced corporation tax was to 15%. And I think it was the 94 to 97 Rainbow Coalition. Rory Quinn, I think, was Minister for Finance. I think he brought it down to 12.5%. And pretty well, I mean, it became, it became this touchstone that that was the thing. That was the reason that they came. Tax them lowly and they will come became our mantra. And tax them lowly we did and come they did. So I suppose there's a sense of, now whether that's post hoc propter hoc reasoning or not, I don't know, but they did come. And for absolutely, like you say, it was, an, it was a, as Jane Austen would say, it was a conviction universally acknowledged to be true, that a small country in possession of a low corporation tax would, would, should stick to it. And until basically the day before yesterday, it would have, it was it would have been a disaster and a shame and a horror if that corporation tax was to be touched. We had fought deep battles over it with Europe in the two thousands, but we had come out unscathed. And the one thing we knew that we had a veto. Any attempt to change taxation required unanimity. Therefore, we had an effective veto, which would defend us and defend our twelve and a half percent. And it just went. It just disappeared. It was like a. A shower of snow that came sometime in April out of nowhere. And then the temperature went back up four or five degrees and it was gone. It was like it never happened. And if you'd been indoors when it had happened, you would never have seen it. It's just, and there is, have you read a single substantial piece saying, oh my God, it's a disaster? No, but here's a selection of headlines just from the Times on their own. Um... Pascal Donoghue, tax change will pay off for Ireland. Uh, Pascal Donoghue foils OECD trap, but haggling lies ahead. No tax crunch for the number crunchers, which I suppose is technically about accountancy, but still. Corporate tax hike may net exchequer 2 billion. 
agreeing to higher corporate tax rate will boost Ireland's international standing, say experts. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on across most of the papers. Now, I'm not saying any of these people are wrong. What I'm saying is it's very interesting. (laughs) You're not saying they're right either. (laughs) A month ago, had exactly the opposite opinion. And there were studies being brought out saying, oh, it would be, be disastrous, we'd lose so much money. And then we make this decision, and suddenly there are just studies that say, actually, no, it'll probably be fine. No, we're actually, no, this is not just a fine thing. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. We are restoring our reputation internationally. The one that broke, like, I've, I've read most of this, but the one that broke me was one in the Business Post. And it's called The Last Post. Why it was worth it for Ireland to hang tough on two little words. And the subheading is, the deletion of at least gives some certainty for the future. But while a higher corporation tax rate might not deter major international firms from locating here, they may have other questions about the reliability of electrical supply and potential planning issues. Now that would seem to be many of the things we've been talking about, Michael. Yeah. But I clicked into it before seeing who wrote it, and then I realised it was written by Matt Cooper. And I realised this was not going to be a, you know, a, a detailed look at this. This is going to be a half-educated man who's heard some words and has managed to string them together into something. Oh, come on. At least. Taking out the at least is going to provide some certainty, security for the future. Oh, come on, lads. Absolutely signing up to this deal does provide some certainty for the future. It's provided the certainty that Ireland will agree to international tax compacts. I love this thing about about reputational damage. I mean, they really were trying to make out that we had this terrible problem with reputation because of the tax system. It was basically we were the same as some small island in the West Indies or the South Indian Ocean, which was being used by the Chechen mafia to launder drug money. I don't know, did you hear anybody talking about reputational damage to the Dutch because of the people using the, you know, the double Dutch, which companies use here, but you can't do the double Dutch without the Dutch. And yet, the Dutch seem to be strangely unconcerned about the reputational damage. I mean, we talked about this in the last year, so I don't really want to re-legislate it again. But one thing I will say is, is the Americans are going to struggle to get this true. And if the Americans don't get it true and the deal collapses, what I would suspect will immediately happen is the EU is going to push ahead with its own deal. And Ireland will have to stand there and say, well, no, we won't do that. And the EU will simply say, <laughs> I know, but you've already said you'll do that. Uh, but we, we, we didn't think, not like this. We thought it was well. We thought it was going to be different. I have noted, Michael, and you may have seen it as well, that uh, a giant has left Irish public life. Frank Clark. Frank Clark has gone. Frank Clark of the Supreme Court, well, formerly of the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice has uh, retired, and I have uh, been reading through the coverage of Frank Clark, and um, you know, it's very positive. Everyone loves Frank Clark. There are all these wonderful things about um, you know his life and how he's left the Supreme Court in a better situation than he found it, and just you know what a what a cracker of a man he is. But I was reading the Irish Times uh, piece on it. It was quoting Frank Clark, and Frank Clark was saying he was lucky to have been appointed a judge, and he had always found his colleagues helpful. And then he said, "I can't recall a bad word with anyone." <laughs> he's not. He's not trying very hard then. Now. While it is considered impolite to speak ill of the dead, Frank Clark isn't dead. So let's speak ill. We at the time, I, I, Frank Clark, should we say, perhaps overreached in the Seamus Wolf affair. 
And I'd said he should resign, and that if he didn't resign, he should be sacked. So let's remind people of the Seamus Wolf affair and what happened there. Seamus Wolf went to the Gulfgate thing after he had been appointed to the Supreme Court, but before actually sitting on the Supreme Court. There was a report conducted into Seamus Wolf, basically to see what punishment Seamus Wolf should get. Now, this report was put together by a former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, was Susan uh, Denham. And that report said, basically, that he shouldn't be sacked. There were some mild punishments in it, but it said, look, it's not its not a massive thing. There's no clear and constant conflict of interest. And it was a detailed report. And that was to be the end of it, until Frank Clark decided that was not going to be the end of it. And Frank Clark publicly called for Seamus Wolf to resign. The problem there is that Seamus Wolf was appointed by the government to serve on the Supreme Court, and Frank Frank Clark doesn't get an opinion on that. Frank Clark is not the person who decides who turns up on the Supreme Court, but he decided he was going to be. And so he calls for the guy's uh, resignation, for Wolf's resignation, and there was a series of meetings and letters with Wolf, and Wolf seemed particularly aggrieved by them, and that Clark was trying to pressure him to resign. Which was not an unreasonable belief. Yeah, and the problem with that is there's a clear line between the powers of the Chief Justice and the power of the government here. The Chief Justice does not get to say, well, yes, the government has appointed someone to the Supreme Court, but I don't like them, so they've got to go. And so when he did that, I said he should resign, because he had brought the Supreme Court into disrepute. And I believe there was a front-page headline around that time, which was simply... Top judges go to war. Yes. And Clark was saying that Wolf had to resign because he should have known that what he had done would bring the Supreme Court into disrepute. And I remember talking about that headline and saying this was an absolutely foreseeable outcome of Clark's actions. And by the metric he was calling on Wolf to resign, he should do it himself because he was bringing the Supreme Court into disrepute. It was a very strange scenario to see the president of the Supreme Court, who generally speaking while an important and potentially powerful figure in the Irish Constitution, is not usually a household name. It's speculate that more than 5% of the population at any one time could name the President of the Supreme Court. And yet he waded out into the, in, into the, the front pages of the, the, the dailies and the Sundays on this particular issue. I thought it was a very odd choice. I would say not a very judicious choice. And then was left hanging because... He could fulminate all he liked against uh, Seamus Wolf, but as long as Seamus Wolf was content to stay where he was, there was nothing he could do about it. And yet he generated all this brouhaha and attract, and ultimately attracted far more attention to the problem of Wolf and to the Supreme Court than, 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 than Wolf ever had by himself. Wolf's actions did not directly in any way play into his role in the judiciary or reflect on his relationship with his colleagues. Clark actions very much did. He overstepped the bounds assigned to him, which are quite clear and you would have thought quite understandable for the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. But he decided to do so anyway. I will include a link to the letters that were exchanged between Frank Clark and Seamus Wolfe in the bottom of this podcast. It, actually, it was, the, it was the letters, really, that would, if you wanted to say... It's the letters that hang him, and it's the language that he uses in the letters that really are, are problematic. Also, the way he went about it was, I think, quite insulting to Justice Denham. Because Justice Denham is asked to 
write a report to review this, and she does. And Clark decides he doesn't like the results, that they're insufficiently harsh, uh-huh. and decides, well, screw it, I'm going to do what I want anyway. Which, considering you, you're basically deciding to ignore a report by someone who was a former Chief Justice. A very, a, a very, eminent, a very eminent jurist, uh, and a highly respected and uh, a jurist in the illegal community in Ireland. I mean, Susan Denham was no lightweight. I mean, she wouldn't have been where she was if had she been, but, but she's a very, very highly considered person. Yeah, and um, part of the, there was an underlying tone to this, that the appointment of Wolf was not something which was enjoyed by certain elements of the Irish judiciary. There was a feeling that Wolf had uh, overstepped that he had gotten further than he should have. Um, yes, that, and that there may be an element of truth to that. But you don't get an opinion. That's not the way the constitution is organised. Uh, regarding the, the the selection of judges here, maybe we should have senate, senate committees. Maybe we should have all the fun that the Americans have when uh, they come to to choose the people to go on the Supreme Court. It would be certainly more more entertaining than the system we have now. Whether it would be better, I don't know. Yes, and then wasn't it uh, Clark who decided to publish the internal documentation, like the letters that became available? Uh, Wolf had said that that didn't seem terribly beneficial to the court, that it would seem, if anything, to bring more attention to this. And Clark went ahead with it. The, the, the letters and the pub- decision to publish, it, publish the letters, that really. I, I'm not saying that... <laughs> <laughs> like anybody cares what our opinion is of such things, Gary. I I don't think that Clark would necessarily have been out of order to to communicate and speak directly to Wolf and or to to the Taoiseach, to the government, to express his concerns, to say that in the context of the pandemic and uh, the importance of the the role of judges on the Supreme Court and the, the perception that they should be Caesar's wife, that maybe this appointment should be rethought but you keep if you want to do that you keep it private you don't you really event you essentially don't blackmail i mean there's a sense that there was almost like an element of blackmail to this that i i don't know if that's the word which you choose but there is a sense of either or you know i i can go public with this and that would be not something you would particularly want me to do if you don't Come if you don't come up with the goods regarding this point, and that was unpleasant, and that was uh, maybe I think the, the the worst part of this of the thing. However, he has retired. Um, it was an interesting moment. We don't very often get that kind of stuff happening with the judiciary. So it was a, it was an, an interesting moment, an interesting flare up, uh, for which he will principally be remembered, I suppose. Yeah, actually, thinking back on the letters. I think Clark sent a letter to Wolf saying, I think you should resign. And here is, if whatever, here are the punishments you're going to have, and I think you should consider your permission. Also, I'm going to publish this and any response you send. Yeah. And then basically went and said he didn't like the tone of Wolf's apology, and he had damaged the court in the public's eye. And then he created a massive public fuck-up himself, and massively overreached his position. But known uh, as the Irish Times uh, quoted him as saying, he can never recall a bad word having been said. Well, as you say, de mortis nil nisi bonum, even though he, the man isn't mortis. And long may he not be. May he enjoy a long and pleasant retirement, having served the Republic.
This is why I don't have many friends in Irish civil society. My unwillingness to let things go. I don't think it was necessary to add Irish civil society to, for that sentence to stand by itself. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> you know, I like to help. Oh, on another uh, on another old story we were talking about. On Monday we were talking about the Polish embassy and the troubles with RTE, that RTE had referred to a uh, Nazi German concentration camp as a Polish concentration camp and then had told the Polish embassy when the Polish embassy... Um, complained that this Nazi German concentration camp had been called Polish. John Williams, the head of Ortiz News, said that in context it was clear and Ortiz had nothing to correct. And that was to be the end of it. You know, Ortiz had spoken. People didn't seem to agree with Ortiz for the most part. But, you know, they were let it go. So I decided I would reach out to the Polish embassy and ask them that they want to submit an article explaining exactly why Ortiz was wrong. And they uh, they did. So if you haven't seen it, there is now, I'll put a link to it in the bottom of this, there is now a uh, article on Gripped by the Polish ambassador to Ireland uh, explaining why this is an issue and why they would still like RTE to apologise and correct the mistake. And it's, I think it's a pretty decent article, Michael. It makes a fairly good point that uh, perhaps, you know, if tens of thousands of your citizens had died in something, you wouldn't like it referred to as if you had done it. Alternatively, you could take this as just another little m- moment of... Gary Kavanagh saying, no, I'm not going to let you just let this argument die. I'm going to poke around in the ashes and see if I can make it flare up again. I'm going to poke the bear and see if I can get the bear to make a noise, come out of its cave. So he went along to the Polish embassy and said, would you like to write an article about this? See if we can give RT another kick. Or am I being unkind? That's the essence of journalism, Michael. Afflict the comfortable. They are comfortable. Very comfortable. They're immensely comfortable. And they need to be afflicted repeatedly. It's for the same reason that this this HSE misinformation thing that no one else has reported, because this is Ireland, so God knows. Although I did hear some of the tabloids were digging around in it. See, Michael McNamara was talking about it in the doll. I'd missed that, actually, did he? Yeah, I think it was Michael McNamara. The the rather... The... the, uh, Rather good Labour, former Labour TD, now independent from Clare, was talking about the this the use of misinformation and stuff. He's quite good. He's talked about a lot of stuff. I was watching the the fact it didn't get any pick up by anyone else in Ireland. Although, as I said, I had heard some of the tabloids were looking into it. And so what I decided to do over the last couple of days, Michael, because I'd already reached out to the politicians, mm-hmm. is I started reaching out to the journalists who had written the articles that RTE had uh, flagged as misinformation. Yeah, the guys from Reuters and the New York Times and the Hill and Politico, the kind of people who might, might I suspect, Michael, take issue with a state entity classing their work as misinformation. Really? So I've just been reaching out to them, kind of going, hey, did you know that this happened? What do you think about that? (laughs) Because you know what? If the HSE and the Department of Health and Kinzen don't want to talk to me, well, I can't make them. No. But if I sufficiently interest the New York Times... I suspect they'll answer their questions. Or Reuters. Or Reuters. Or The Hill. Or Politico. Or the BMJ. <laughs> I love the way you say reaching out. It's like hands across America. You, <laughs> you, 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 I'm, I'm reaching out to you. I'm imploring you. Come. We just, I just want to be friends. I just want to be friends. I'm just, I'm just letting them know what happened. And yeah. asking them what they think about it. And if that incenses them in some way, that... A state entity put class an article from the New York Times as misinformation. There's nothing I can do about that, Michael. No, no. And maybe the real lesson here is respond to media inquiries. 
maybe uh, maybe the lesson is don't use this kind of shit and pay people large amounts of state money to do a very peculiar job in the first place. Well, I've talked to a couple of people who said that they don't think the HSE is using an algorithm. And for those who haven't seen the story, I'll put a link to it below. It was about the HSE has reported 1,300 social media posts for misinformation uh, since February. And I went through all 1,300 and found that actually they were reporting political stuff, uh, anti-lockdown stuff. Sorry, hold on. You said people think it's not using an algorithm. Yeah, so I, I talked to a couple of people who might know, and they no one who could say definitively, but they thought that while Kinzen was probably collecting some of this, they thought that people in the uh, HSE were just flagging stuff basically randomly. Or, you know, they'd see something and just go, okay, flag that. So, hold on. No, sorry. Hold on. If you're saying they're not using an algorithm, are you saying that this is what in the, in the, in the world of spies would be called human int? Like the... These stories were flagged by human beings. That's what I'm told. Human beings who could, human beings who could read English as their first language. Yeah, but like I don't see any civil servant, no matter how overworked or lowly paid, looking at an article from the New York Times and going, you know what, I'm going to report that as misinformation. Reporting an article from the British Medical Journal, BMJ, one of the what three or four most respected medical journals in the world. Yeah, from, a, from an associate editor of the BMJ. Or that, no, come on. You know that, I thought, quite funny. The cartoon with the large uh, black lady and her bottom. Oh, yes, the real the real side effect of the vaccine is fat ass. Yes. I can't, I mean, I can, I can imagine in theory that there are civil servants who don't have a sense of humour. I doubt that they exist in Ireland, but I can theoretically imagine that they do. But are you going to flag that up? A human being would flag that up as for That seems unlikely. And if they did, I want to meet that person, because I think that person will be a curious person to meet. Yeah, so hopefully we will see some more movement on that. Now, no one may care, but I suspect, I just suspect, that those are the sort of newspapers who care about this sort of thing. That'd be fun, actually, uh, to get a whole gang of annoyed editors <laughs> greening up the government, greening up the agency. What the fuck are you doing? Saying false, false information, fake news. I mean, what are you people on? Are you smoking the crack pipe again? Yeah, I just, I just, I just think the New York Times, when you tell them that a state entity has reported them for publishing misinformation. I just feel they'll want to follow that up. Especially, I mean, the New York Times probably doesn't have to worry a whole lot about it because there are probably protections for... This will have an effect on how groups like, say, YouTube and Facebook will regard the commentary of certain individuals or certain outlets if this kind of thing is reported by a state-sponsored body as false news or fake news. Yeah, particularly since the HSE and other health bodies can complain directly to social media companies without going through the normal channels because it's COVID and you know the social media companies want to be on top of that. So they'll have far more impact than just some random are doing it. But uh, no, no one will respond to any of my questions at all. It's actually quite interesting because usually they do respond and the HSE had promised to respond, but then they just didn't. Anyway, such is life, Michael. We continue just poking stuff with a stick and seeing what happens. <laughs> There's the big buzzy thing. Let's poke a stick in that side that and see what comes out. 
oh no, it's the foreseeable consequences of my actions. <laughs> run! Run! Here come the foreseeable consequences. In Austria, Michael, Kurz is gone. It says, this is a very bizarre story. I, 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 and it's the kind of thing that reminds you why we should be grateful to live in the country that we do, Gary. Because uh, it's, it's a shocking and disturbing story. And thank God, nothing like that could ever happen here. So what's happened is that Sebastian Kurz, who was the leader of Austria, has resigned because he is uh, under investigation. He used government funds to get favourable media coverage. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? So what, what is alleged is that um, Kurz or his people made payments to a newspaper to publish opinion polls which uh, are said to have benefited his party, the People's Party. And the money is alleged to have come from the finance ministry. So he's being investigated. A number of other people are uh, being investigated with them. Now, these actions are not modern. These are going back to, I think, about 2016. Mm. It's been a rough while for Kurz. I, 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 I know people might think that this is all put on, but I am genuinely, when I read this story, it genuinely made me laugh. The idea, <clears throat> in the context of what we've seen in Ireland the last two years, the idea that, for, well, first of all, as I said, it would never happen in Ireland. The idea that the leader, the, the, the chancellor, their can, that uh, of of us, they should resign, that he should, should resign because he was suspected of having done something. But then, what was he suspected of having done? Having channeled money towards media outlets in hope of getting good uh, coverage. When you look at the amount of money that has gone out of tax coffers into the media in Ireland over the last two years and the coverage, the wonderful coverage that COVID has provided for so much. And it's not just the big names, but all, right down to, uh, the, to the local radio and the local papers. And it's been direct and it's been indirect, indirect in the form of uh, public health announcements, service announcements, advertising, that kind of thing from the HSC, the Department of Health, etc. And you think... <laughs> Uh, yeah, and that's come absolutely no strings attached, no expectation that there should be any kind of reporting or the reporting should carry a certain tone. Because, you know, Gary, we have seen under the area of COVID and the management of COVID and you know, other areas we might say, but certainly in that area, there's been such a, a lively debate and such a diversity of opinion that it's really been heartening to see that, you know, that Irish democracy and Irish media is a lively, interested, engaged place. It's certainly not some kind of monolithic monoculture where only one set of opinions is allowed and anybody outside of that a set of opinions is considered to be a dangerous, mad person that needs to be taken off and confined because they might poison the rest of the population and give us all cooties. And from what I recall, Michael, and I might be wrong about this, and please do correct me if I am, but my understanding is that I was the only person to write about that and to give figures to it based on some PQs that were sent in by Carol Nolan asking exactly how much money uh, all of these media types had uh, gotten. I don't think I saw any other media source comment on that. It, it may have escaped my notice. I didn't find any other or see any other uh, source writing about it, which would be amazing, wouldn't it, that the Irish media would carefully 
avoid discussing this fact, you know, because they are in other in other ways. You know, so it wasn't Socrates' famous dictum, the unexamined life is not worth living. And generally speaking, the idea that you know, the Irish media is a Socratic ideal, I mean, in, other, in every other way, they are just the Socratic idea that they should not examine themselves would be remarkable. But I, strangely, I have not seen that particular article anywhere else. No, and the figures that we published uh, were clearly incomplete because it's it's very difficult to get all of this detail because there's no central register. But what we published on, based on Carol Nolan's PQs, was a department by department, what was the spend on advertisements for COVID? Because what I'd been hearing from talking to people was that, particularly in relation to radio, the initial collapse in advertisement uh, during the early stages of COVID particularly, was so bad that they were becoming basically entirely dependent on government money and that this was being used as a subsidy. I would say that I don't actually believe that there was some kind of explicit quid pro quo in the sense that people consciously, deliberately didn't do certain things or did certain things as a con- as a result of that. I, I'm, there's a famous quote by Hugh, Humbert Wolf. Uh, he said, you cannot hope to bribe or twist, thank God, the British journalist. But seeing what the man will do unbribed, there's no occasion to. And I think that's pretty well the story in the Irish. You know, you can't bribe them, but there's no need to because what they'll do unbribed is quite remarkable by itself. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. There would never have been a request for any particular type of coverage. But you know who's paying you. You know. And I know that because when I talked to several people about some things I was reporting on, particularly in relation to the ISAG stuff, I was explicitly told by several people in radio and various radio stations that they wouldn't touch it because they were uh, so careful to not offend the government because so much of their funding was coming from it. And that's all you need. You don't need a quid pro quo. You just need, we're going to be careful about what we say here. Two people like I, 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 the famous anecdota rather than data, but I can I know of one prominent columnist and one journalist, both of whom told me that they had had a series of well, in one case, the journalist case, series of articles, I think three articles spiked with no explanation, and the and a columnist told me that they had never had a column refused over years of writing never had a column refused and had written twice about this sub- the ISAG subject. The both of these were talking about ISAG and talk, right, talking about ISAG and neither piece was published. And again, with, with no comment. And I thought that that, that was, shall we say at the very least curious, but you know, we don't want to go all conspiracy head out about it. No, no, what was happening is the government has obviously been taking up massive amounts of advertisement about COVID. And at various points, that has made varying levels of sense. But what we were seeing in the funding was that they were still taking out advertisements that didn't really seem to make sense. Things that by now had absolutely sunk in or were kind of superfluous. And the question then became, well, why would you place those ads if you don't really need them? Is it a case that the civil service is just that slow? Or is it a case that these are effectively being used as subsidies? Oh, Gary, by, by the end of this process... I say I, I don't know if the process has actually ended, but we'll say, as recently in the last few months, like some of the public service announcements 
had really had got to the point of turning your radio on to hear someone say to you, now folks, if it rains, you should come inside because we can tell you, if it rains, you may get wet. There was a series of adverts. I don't know if you if you heard them on the radio, Gary. I, maybe there was a version on TV. I don't know. Which was directed at people who were taking holidays in Ireland and might have to drive their car in order to get to wherever they were going. And it was basically telling people, you know, if you're driving your car and you're on a road you don't know, you shouldn't go too fast. It, I mean, there was a level of... Frankly, if this is the kind of advice you need on how to drive a car, you shouldn't have a license in the first place. But it, it was, it was beyond, this was beyond remedial stuff. It was so bad, it was so basic that you, you really did think, this is something that they've had to, they've, they're desperately thinking, what can we do now in the line of a public service announcement that we can pass off as some way connected with COVID, some way connected with public safety, something to do with public health. And we make it, so, and then we'll broadcast it and we'll send it on to all the local stations and we'll give them money for the fact that we're taking up airtime. It, it really, it was like a product which had been invented just to occupy airtime on the radio stations of Ireland. It was just so awful. It really was. If it's wet, come in. Yeah, but uh, that that is what it is. Anyway, that brought down Kerr's. And, you know, thankfully we will never see such a thing in Ireland, Michael. <laughs> it's unlikely. It was kind of amateurishly done, I must say, if it was done the way it is alleged to have been done. We've got a much better system in place. <laughs> Do you think? Can we just give people money? Just give them money straight off, shamelessly. And if anybody asks questions, just look at them. What are you talking about? Are you some kind of anti-vaxxer? Yeah. And it's it's like, Michael, when we hire academics for projects not not for the ebi but you know just for political life when you've hired experts to write things you never tell them the result you want but i've yet to pay an expert for something and not get that result it's an odd thing isn't it the way this those those results seem to just come in just on the mark mm. particularly when it's including that yeah and it's 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 almost like in courts when you you find expert witnesses they tend to always agree with the side paying them. It's bizarre. It is It is very odd that that people have found a forensic psychiatrist or some kind of a, a, an entomologist or whatever the hell that happens to be, and they put them in the witness box. And they, they, when they ask them the questions, they get all the right answers. But to be slightly more, more serious on this, the, the way Kerr's did this was, was silly. The way to actually do this and the way you actually attempt to get things to move in your direction is you never explicitly tell someone the result. What you want to create is a positive relationship with you. The sort of relationship where they will consider certain things. And you might think that's a bit odd. Why would a social you know, social relationship be what you want to create? And it's because people are social animals. And having someone like you is actually a very good way to ensure that the coverage is positive. No, it's that joggy. So that it, 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 it is very powerful. And this, the social nature of the human animal... The, as Hyde called us, the groupishness of the human animal is very, very powerful. And it, it operates at all sorts of levels. I mean, it, it's hugely important in politics. Political parties would not survive as entities simply based on the idea that you can group a bunch of people around a set of ideas. 
that would never work just simply on that basis because the ideas depending on time and context and would change and people would come and they would go and they would just they would, and, and when you come to ideas people would argue about the ideas and you'd stress this idea over that idea and this is more important in the hierarchy than that what holds political parties together is the relationships that people have at a human level with the other members of the party and that's what pe keeps people even for a long time against their intellectual and moral positions in a sense in the party it's just that human connection and which we, you can describe as a sense of loyalty it's friendship it's whatever it is but it's it are those social connections that human connection that keeps people in 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 a political party or indeed in, probably in any other in any organization when you see people you think what the hell is he still doing in Sinn Féin, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, whatever it is chances are because he feels some kind of deep loyalty deep connection not to the high ideal or to the party in itself but rather to the people in the party that he's he or she has grown up with or has worked with and worked for over the years and if you can do that with journalists or with media you have to be an extraordinary journalist gary that can meet every single individual person that you're dealing with in politics or in society in general and encounter them in a completely neutral way whether you like them you dislike them it doesn't matter that takes i would say a, a capacity which is not really human no which is why most newspapers at least outside ireland and actually the tabloids are pretty good on this in even in ireland most countries have quite detailed rules uh, newspapers have quite detailed rules about what you can and cannot do with people you're meeting and sources and things like that like you never accept gifts from people regardless of what they are you never let them buy you food weirdly enough uh, a good lunch can actually go far further than a cash payment yeah, yeah. Cash payment is a very transitory thing, and also, and there are all sorts of issues psychologically, morally, with cash. But just a lunch or two, and the belief that somehow you have an actual connection with this other person can be, for the long term, a far more useful relationship. Yeah, you just need to plant a little seed that when a person has a story in front of them that's bad for you or your people, they'll look at it and sort of go, "Ah, I mean, he's a decent sort." And then maybe they give you some advance notice. Maybe they hedge it slightly and make it that little bit less aggressive towards you. You probably won't stop the story, but you take the edge off it. And the cumulative impact over time is a massive benefit to you. I cannot remember who did it. It was one of the Irish political reporters. I think it was a woman, but I can't remember who. And she put up on Twitter one day that um, she had been stuck in the doll reporting, I think, and that one a TD's parliamentary assistant had gone out and bought her lunch as a gift and just gave it to her. And she was talking about how nice this was. And other journalists were saying, yeah, that's lovely, that's really nice. And I remember seeing it. I was just thinking, that's a massive issue. You do not accept gifts from people. And that's actually, while people were saying it's a really minor thing that someone would get you lunch, it's actually a very major thing because of the way it's done and its potential to impact on you. Because it's a legitimately nice gesture. Yeah, that makes it worse. That may actually makes it substantially worse. Because you're going to be more pleasant towards those people. And it's always, yeah, there's always a problem. Because no person can be stoned to everyone. But you don't fucking accept a gift from someone. And then take to Twitter to tell people that it was great. I think that was the thing that annoyed me the most. 
that it was such an accepted part of journalistic life in Ireland. It's not even that you would do it. It's that you would tell people you had done it and not see any issue with it. And your peers would think it was perfectly acceptable. Oh, well, you know, the human beings can be funny sometimes. The other problem is it's difficult to explain to people because if you explain it to people, they're like, what is the harm of that? That is a tiny thing. And then you have to start talking about like the possibility of bias and you just look deranged. <laughs> yes. Also, no one in Ireland gives a shit. So like accept anything you want. This is, that's I think probably rather true, more importantly true. Was it the Irish Times that had one of their political writers hired by Fine Gael and then had her work out her month's notice in the political section. <laughs> that is right. Yeah, I think. Or was it? Was it, yeah, it was Fine Gael. Or was it? Or, or was it the Social Democrats? I think it was the Irish Times, and I think it was Fine Gael. And the Irish Times let them stay writing in the political section uh, because they hadn't gone to work for Fine Gael yet. And that those are the lofty ethical standards that we aspire to in our paper of record. But I suppose the Irish. <laughs> The Irish Times might say that this is proof of their lofty ethical standards. They are so confident in the pristine, pure, sort of perfect ethics of their journalists that they will be unaffected by any future prospect of employment or future certainty of employment in this case. And that they will behave as any Irish journalist would or should behave. Uh, <coughs> Even though lower, more meat base types like you and me might find that hard to understand. I might look at that and say, that just seems like a, like a conflict of interest at just a massive level. Not if you're pure of heart. Washed in the blood of the lamb. All right, we will be back on Wednesday. All the best. Bye-bye.